Today, the title is Resurrection Part 1, Necessary for Salvation. That's kind of the point Paul is making today. It's necessary to believe in the resurrection. This is something that we have to believe in. It's a core tenet of the gospel. It's not negotiable. It happened. You can't not believe it and be saved. And uh, let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11 together. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I thank you so much for all the things that you teach us and for all the truths that are in Scripture. And some are more foundational than others, but they're all important and they're all deep. And we can spend our whole lives searching them and getting to new depths as we know you more and more. But this one in particular, the resurrection, is so essential. It's what you did, God. You raised your son from the dead. You want us to believe it. I pray that we would understand the importance of it, not just as a fact, not just as an evidence for Jesus being who he said he was, but also for what it means for us spiritually as we go through these chapters together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in a new section now, as I said in the introduction. Um, we're, we're no longer in a section where Paul is answering questions they've asked him. You might have noticed that recently, these last chapters, it was always, now concerning this, and now concerning that, and concerning this. And so they had sent him this letter, and he was answering that. So now he's back to just kind of commenting on things that he's noticed about them, whether it was a report from Chloe. We don't know if this particular issue was something that Chloe reported. But he says in verse 12, the thing that he's responding to specifically is the fact that people in this church didn't believe in the resurrection, or some didn't. And so this is what he's addressing. And I didn't read verse 12 because that's going to be part of next week, but, but that's kind of the main thing he's, he's addressing. And maybe you're shocked by that. Maybe you think, how could a, a Christian not believe in the resurrection? But this isn't a new thing. In fact, even at the time of Christ, there were some Jews that didn't believe in a resurrection. They were called the Sadducees. They denied the resurrection. That's why they're called Sadducees, because they're sad, you see? <laughs> Sorry. Hashtag pastor jokes. It's like you can't avoid them. You have to, like, you have to do it. It's like a, you have to do it. Um, 
They didn't believe in the resurrection. So for them, their religion basically was like, well, these are good principles to live by. No, I don't actually believe I'm going to raise from the dead when I die. When I die, I die. But it's just, it gives you a better life now. And so they, that's how they believed. And so that must have carried over into some of the Christians at that time. They also did, apparently didn't believe in the resurrection. And believe it or not, there are some Christians today that don't really, well, I wouldn't even call them Christians. They call themselves Christians, but they don't really believe in all that spiritual stuff. You know, they like going to church. They like the tradition of it. They like, you know, growing up in the church. They think that putting their kids in church, they're good programs. They lead to good morals. They cause you to have a good life. They teach you good life principles. But as far as like really like raising from the dead and like the afterlife, I'm not really sure about all that. There are people who call themselves Christians that believe that way. There are those that go to church every Sunday, that sit out there in their pews, and they, they like to get greeted when they come in. They know everybody they've met have grown up in that church. They have a history there. They like all the tradition. They like all the, the, the ornaments and the decorations, and they put their money in the plate, and they, they enjoy all of that. But if you really ask them, but do you really believe these things? They might say, well, look, it's, it's something that I grew up with. You know, I feel happy. It makes me feel good. I enjoy it. So that, that actually happens today too, believe it or not. Um, and Paul here is going to spend the whole chapter saying, no, as a Christian, you have to believe this actually happened. You have to really believe in the resurrection. Paul takes it very seriously. And it is a good time to point out the fact that not all doctrines are created equal. You know, there are some... Christians that are too immature to realize that. They think that everything they believe is of equal importance. And so if anybody disagrees on any point, they want to pull up their sword and fight to the death over it. Any small thing. Not every doctrine is like that. You don't have to divide over every little thing. Um, and there are some that talk very matter-of-factly about all sorts of things, and they have the right answer, and they're never wrong, and they've got to defend every little thing. And a lot of that stuff, it's not worth creating division over but the resurrection is one of those things. This is a hill to die on. This is one of those things where if someone calls themselves a Christian and denies the resurrection, that's a battle you should fight. No one gets to question the resurrection. That is not one of the easy little, oh, that's okay, you don't have to believe that. No, we have to believe that. And it's, it's a core part of the gospel. Paul's going to explain the gospel in a second. He's going to summarize the gospel and show how the resurrection is part of that. And then Paul said in Galatians 1.8, if anyone, even an angel, teaches any other gospel, they're accursed. So even if an angel's like, yeah, I have got the inside scoop, just so you know, he didn't really raise. That's not an angel. It's a demon. And anyone who says, hey, I'm a Christian, by the way, I don't believe in the resurrection. That's not a Christian. This is a core gospel thing. It's a non-negotiable. And then in verse 2, he says, by which you are saved. And I want to stop there for a second because I want to answer the second part of that verse. But the first part kind of fits neatly with verse 1. Listen to what he's saying about the gospel. He's saying the gospel I preached, the gospel you received, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel by which you are saved. I think it's a really great kind of summary. That might be like a great topical series one time to go through like, Preaching the gospel, receiving the gospel, standing in the gospel, being saved by the gospel. It, the gospel does require a messenger. It is important to live the right kind of life, but we can't just live the right life. We do at some point have to share our faith because no one can get saved just by looking at us without knowing what it is that's changed us. 
Now, they might ask us, which is really convenient. I mean, you all hear stories of someone like, you know, I noticed something different about you. What is that? That's never happened to me. If that's happened to you, awesome. But you might not ever get asked. But people are in your life. They're seeing how it's changed. And even if you can kind of get little things, like put little nuggets out there. Let someone know you go to church. Let someone know, you know, that you went to some Bible study that was great for you or you read something. Or just, you know, if you find ways to kind of indicate to people that you're a believer, we got to get the message out somehow. It's not always as much of a front of like, let me sit you down right now in the middle of all you're doing and just tell you the whole gospel. We don't always get that chance. But they're not always going to ask us. But it has to be shared. It's a message. It's not just a lifestyle, right? The good news. It's the good news, yeah. not just the good life. Right. Right? Okay. Um, and remember, this is the gospel they had received. So the determining factor of salvation is how you receive the message. We mentioned this a lot when we were in Acts. People would hear the gospel, some would receive it, some wouldn't receive it. And that was the difference between being saved and not being saved. Who received it? Who welcomed it? Who grabbed hold of it? Who believed the gospel? So they, this church, they had received it. And then the gospel in which you stand. As believers, we do stand in the gospel. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not like I believed it back then and now I don't have to think about it anymore. It's a, we have to continually remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel because we're standing in that. That's, that is the only reason why we're saved. That's the reason we're not condemned. That's the reason we're not judged any longer. That's the reason for our changed life. It's all, it's all excuse me, it's all the gospel. And so we stand continually on the gospel and we're saved by it. Like Paul said in Romans 1, it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So we receive it, we stand in it, we're saved by it. And this is why defending the core beliefs of the gospel is a hill worth dying on because it has eternal significance. Believing in the gospel is the difference between heaven and hell. And so Paul then says in verse 2, By which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, um, it's easy to misread this verse. It's easy to think that in this verse, Paul's only mentioning one condition for salvation. For example, it's easy to think Paul is saying, you're saved if you hold fast, otherwise you believed in vain. But he didn't say otherwise, he said unless. And what's actually happening here is that's the second condition. So Paul's saying, there are two conditions that have to be met for you to be saved. A, you hold fast, and B, you didn't believe in vain. I'm going to explain what those mean in a second, but it's an important distinction because if we don't read it correctly, it sounds like Paul is saying, if you don't hold fast, then the results are you must have believed in vain. So I guess you're not saved because you didn't hold fast. And it starts to sound like Paul is promoting a works-based salvation dynamic, but he's not. He's giving two different conditions and... We have to know what he means by them. So the first one, what does he mean by hold fast? Huh? Sorry, I was thinking out loud. I was wondering if abide would be hold fast. That's what it seems like, Mm -hmm. but that makes it feel like, so I have to continually stay in this and never waver or else I'm not saved. But what that word actually means, hold fast, is keep in memory. So a lot of translations call it keep in memory, remember it. So the commentator Barnes says, for example, if they faithfully retained or held the doctrines as he delivered it. So here's Paul's not talking about being saved by any kind of works. He's not talking about continually being obedient in every way. He's talking specifically about 
the teaching he gave them, the gospel he gave them, and they need to hold fast to those core tenets that he gave them. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, the whole context here is, is gospel and resurrection. So salvation is by faith, but it's not faith in anything. Does that make sense to you? Salvation is by faith, but it's not faith in whatever you want to have faith in. It's not faith in frogs, okay? It's not faith in Trump. It's not faith in angels, miracles. It's specifically faith in the gospel. So someone who says, I believe in Jesus, but my idea of Jesus was he was a good man, maybe a prophet. I'm not sure if he was the Messiah. I don't think he's God, but I believe he existed. That's not salvation. So it, it matters what you believe in, not just that you believe in something. So he's saying, by which you are saved, this gospel by which you're saved, if you hold fast to what I preached to you, the gospel I gave you. Now the second condition, he says, unless you believed in vain. What does Paul mean by believing in vain? If we don't know what he means, it can be easy to think what he means is you get to the end of your life and you just didn't do enough good things, then all that was in vain. Why'd you even try? But that's not what he's saying. In verse 14, he'll, he's going to clarify. He says, Verse 14, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. So here are the two conditions that Paul says, you can be saved if you believe the gospel and if it's true. <laughs> that, that's what he's saying. Wow. Your faith's in vain if Christ didn't raise. If it's not true, your faith's in vain. So the whole context here, people in the church believing that there's no resurrection, Paul's like, I taught you these things, and you were saved by these things, and you are saved if you still believe what I taught you, and if it's true that he rose from the dead. If he didn't raise, you're not saved. Nobody is. So that's where he's headed. So first he's going to remind them of the gospel that he preached before, which they received, in which they stood, and by which they were saved, in verse 3. For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So this is a summary of the gospel. And now if you're a good student and you remember all the things that you ever learn, you might have noticed that it's pretty similar to our gospel roots study book. It's a bit different. Um, here he's emphasizing more certain things. Paul also gives a more detailed summary in Romans 1 verse 6, where he mentions some more things and he goes into some more detail and he spends quite a bit of time unpacking those things in Romans. So this isn't meant to be a complete list of like, this and only this is the gospel. But this here, he's doing it for an important reason. He's going to make the connection with how, do you see how him being raised is part of the gospel? Remember how I taught you that thing? And then he wants, so he's, he's emphasizing that in this. And what he's going to do now is show that it's based on evidence. Starting in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain now, but some have fallen asleep. But then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, really quickly, why does he mention the twelve in verse 5, but then specifically mention James and all the apostles? My view is this James in verse 7 is not one of the 12. There were actually two James that were disciples. There was James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. But there's also a James, the brother of Jesus. 
mentioned in Matthew 27, 56. So many believe that this James here, because he's mentioned outside of the 12, it means the other James, Jesus' brother. And then when it says all the apostles, as I said before, the word apostle doesn't have to mean the official 12. It can mean any that were sent. There were like over 70 that were sent all at once by Jesus at one time. So the point here is he appeared to a lot of people. And probably the most important thing here to notice is that he appeared to more than 500 at once. And this is something that Case for Christ brought out is like it's one thing for one person to hallucinate. It's another thing for 500 people to have the same hallucination and to all still be living and saying, no, this is what I saw. At that time when Paul wrote this, they were all mostly still alive. So this was the evidence. That was compelling evidence. They could still go to them and say, you were there, what did you see? And you could get everyone, you could put them all in a room separately, and they were telling the same story. It was real evidence. It couldn't be refuted. When the apostles preached, they would say, you yourselves know, you yourselves saw, you guys crucified him, you saw his empty grave, you saw these things, you saw him alive after he died. Like That was evidence. Now today, we have different evidence. We don't have that. They've all died by now. It's been a long time. But we still have evidence. We have history. We have archaeology. We've got science. We have ancient manuscript evidence. And all of it points to the same facts. And that's why so many books have written to show that. And some of the books that I've found really meaningful are Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I remember being in high school. My mom had that book, and I'd always pull it out and try to read it and remember it and forget it and try to read it again. It's huge, yep. but really it's an important book. Um, and Case for Christ is another great one. They've got a movie now for that, but the book's a lot better. There's just so much facts and so much evidence for that, and it's really critical. I love the fact that Christianity, we're not afraid of evidence. We're, you know, like other, other cults, like just so you know, um, Jehovah's Witnesses are told they're not allowed to read literature against their religion. They're not allowed to read things that might go against what they believe. They're not allowed to. Christians, you, you're allowed to look for the facts. Go to, look at science. Look at archaeology. Look at what it says. Look at the manuscript yourself. Look at the evidence. We're not afraid of facts. So I love that. And I love how Case for Christ, Lee Strobel's friend, said to him, if you want to prove Christianity wrong, start with the resurrection. It was like a challenge. He's like, go ahead and try. You're a reporter. You don't have to do due diligence. Go ahead and look it up. Try to prove it wrong. And the evidence proves this. And if Christ hadn't risen, we shouldn't believe. If the evidence points to a Savior that didn't rise, then we shouldn't believe in him. That's the challenge, the evidence-based challenge that Christianity has. Now, um, verses 8 through 11, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And you might remember in Acts 9, Jesus appeared to Paul, but it was after he had already risen and ascended. So it was a unique apparition. It wasn't like the rest of the apostles. And in fact, many questioned Paul's apostleship because he didn't walk with Jesus while he was alive at all. He became a believer after Christ was gone. And so I like how Paul handles that. He doesn't feel entitled because of how much good he's done to be called an apostle, he, he kind of just gives that up. He's, yeah, look, I, I'm the least of all the apostles, he says. You know, as of one untimely born, 
you know, I, I came into the game way late. I recognize that. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because not only that, but I also persecuted the church. I recognize all that, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that, and I think we can learn something important from Paul's example here. See, Paul acknowledged his sins. He confessed not even just past sins, but even present sins. You know, So here he's talking about, by the way, this is like 20 years ago, from the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians, when he was saved till now, it's been about 20 years. He's still talking about sins he did way back then. But in Romans, he's talking about, Romans 7, sins he's currently struggling with. He had no problem talking about the fact that, look, I've sinned, this is what I've done, I still struggle with sin. And then he'd say, but by the grace of God. You know, we often say we're saved by grace, but really, it's a lot more than that. We live by grace, we breathe by grace, we're called by grace. It's all grace. Because of how holy God is, and because of our sin, we don't deserve any breath. Everything we have is grace. It's all grace. But some don't like talking about our need for grace. Some don't like mentioning their sin. They think that they shouldn't have to even consider it anymore because grace. But how do you really appreciate grace if you don't recognize what it's given to you? If you can't recognize what it meant to a holy God that you sinned against him and what grace did for you. That's, you it, in order to really have a deep understanding of grace, we have to be able to be like Paul and say, look, I have done these things. I still struggle with this, but by the grace of God. There has to be an aspect of our life where we recognize everything we have is by grace. And the deeper we go in that, the more we're going to recognize, gosh, I did not deserve, like, like Paul, I'm totally unfit of all of this. It's like it says in 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, one final point on this. Just because Paul mentions his sin, that doesn't mean Paul is feeling condemned by it. And I want you all to know the difference between that because I think some people struggle with feeling condemned and so their answer is, never talk about sin. But that's not really giving God a chance to do the real good work in you of really understanding grace. It's a very low path to joy. It's basically saying, I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to feel bad about myself. And talking about sin makes me feel bad about myself, so I'm just not going to do it. That's kind of like taking things into our own hands instead of saying to God, I've done bad stuff. And I just need to keep remembering your grace and remembering your forgiveness and remembering your mercy. That's the higher path to lasting long joy. That's the path to a deeper understanding of grace. To be able to acknowledge our sin, but like Paul say, yeah, but I'm not condemned by it. Yes, I do these things. When I sin, I do confess it to God. But right then he forgives me of it. And it's gone. It's, it's, it's no longer. As soon as I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. By the grace of God, I stand. And that's how Paul is. He's like, look, I'm the least of the apostles. Not only did I come into the game super late, but I also used to persecute the church. And even though it's been 20 years, I still think about that and I still deal with that. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And I'm trusting in him. I'm standing in the gospel. I'm standing in his grace. I'm not going to let it condemn me anymore. 
but I am going to share with you my shortcomings because it might open up an opportunity for us to unite together on a deeper level. Maybe you struggle with something that you don't think anybody else does, and by me sharing it with you that I've had those struggles, but God has saved me from those things, now it can bless that other person. So if we confess those things, we talk about those things, it gives us a chance to say, this is how the grace of God has saved me. And so you're not going to feel condemned, but you will have an opportunity to dive deeper into the understanding of grace if you can be like Paul here and say, look, yeah, I did these things, and I still struggle with these things, but by the grace of God, 